turning a corner in Paul's letter to where he's been laying some foundations. Now he's beginning to set things on that foundation. Last week's text and this week's text, brothers and sisters, literally changed my life and the trajectory of our whole family. And I pray it does for you as well. And, and so stand with me in honor of, of God's word. And especially in our minds, we stand in honor of our father, of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who indwells every child of God. And so let us listen to the words of our father today who speaks to us through his word. Galatians 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a, son, no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So our Father who is in heaven, we reverence your name, we reverence your word, and yet we receive a very personal, intimate, amazing message today. That you did not just save us and leave us as slaves. You didn't just save us and leave us as free men and women. You saved us so that you might adopt us. This is an amazing thing. And we long for all of your blood-bought children to see it. That this may propel us all into the life God has called us to live. And oh God, if there be one who is not in your family today, Lord, would you redeem them so that you might adopt them for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, be seated. So, if we go out to town as a family, sometimes we get stared at. It's just reality. Most of the times people can figure it out if, if me and Christina are together, but sometimes if she goes out or Laura goes out and people get confused because all of our children don't exactly look like us physically, and so they begin to ask questions, all kinds of weird questions, and they get worse. I'm not going to tell you the worst ones. Where's their real parents? These are the ones we've been asked. Do you have children of your own? Those are some of the easy ones. What's the underlying implication? 
that their heritage, therefore their identity must be somewhere else. Listen, where someone is born is important. But as Sean said, one of the first things we met when we met him and we started talking about names, he stood up straight and he said, Little John. You see, who they are, fully, not partially, is my sons and daughters. Not partially. Not maybe one day, but they are fully. And so what this reveals to us is some problems with us, doesn't it? Some problems of us understanding how little we know about being in God's family. Because if you're in God's family, you are only there through adoption. But not only that, could it, could it be that maybe... This can get to the heart of some of our issues. If today, right now, we only feel like we're partially God's child. That Jesus is fully God's child, but I'm only partially. Is this what scripture teaches us? There is a book, and I would highly recommend it. It's out there in our library that literally, literally changed the trajectory of our family's life. It is a book from J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Hopefully, maybe quote a couple of passage, quotes from that today. He says this, quote, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And this is what Paul has labored so hard. To lay for us foundationally that our salvation, our standing before Christ, is our justification, our declaration of righteousness by faith in Christ's works, not our own. We cannot earn it. We cannot pay for it. We cannot do enough good deeds to earn right standing before a holy God. It must be received as a gift. He's labored hard for that, hasn't he? To some degree, this sermon today at the beginning is a lot of review. But now, he's turning the corner. He's wanting us to understand, not just foundationally, we've been justified. We've been declared righteous in His sight by faith. But this changes a position. Okay, what is the position? And we call this sonship. It's not about gender. It's about a position. So God declares us righteousness through His finished work on the cross. And He gives us a new position. And He does this through adoption. Through bringing us into His family. And like any of us know who have a family, being in a family comes with privileges that those outside the family do not experience. So there is a position and then there are privileges. So how does Paul go about? Now look at the text. Look at verses 1 and 2. How is he going to go about helping us understand this new position? You can't, ex you can't understand your sonship lest you understand redemption. And you can't understand the redemption of who you are now until you understand what's happened to you then. And so he does what he does, Paul does so well, he puts a contrast in place, and he wants us to review, he wants us to remember what he's always said in chapter 3 of our unredeemed position. Remember, we talked about this last week. We are under guardians, and we are enslaved. 
Verse 1 and 2, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardian and manager until the date set by the father. Now, Paul loves him a metaphor. And he loves to paint pictures. And so we, he, gave, he gave this to us last week of a child. And look, you see this word child? This is better interpreted minor than infant. It's not, it's not talking about a baby. He's talking about someone who has not reached of age. He's still dependent. Therefore, they are assigned usually a slave, a guide. And the role of the guide was to enforce the will of the father. That was his job. His primary job wasn't to teach. It wasn't to parent. His job was to enforce. He was the disciplinarian. Until, look at that, at the end of two, until what? The date set by his father. So that it doesn't matter. Child's going to grow up to be an heir. But while he's a minor, he's no better than a slave because he must do as he's told. He must be enforced. This is our position, the unredeemed position. We're under the law. We're under the guardian. That's the picture. But not only that, we were enslaved. Verse 3. In the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now flip back with me. Look up to Galatians 3.23. Because like I said, he's, he's reinstilling like a good teacher does. Here's what we've learned. I'm going to review it. Then we're going to add to it. Galatians 3.23. Look at what he says. Now before faith has come, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith would be revealed. Now, next week, we're going to get into this elementary principles of the world. I think you're going to be surprised what Paul is accusing the Judaizers and those Galatians of. But what have we already learned? That we are enslaved first by sin. That we do not do what we know we should do. We are enslaved to a nature that loves to do our own thing. And justify it. The law simply reveals it. It reveals who we are. And then it holds us in condemnation. For the sin that we do. This is how we are enslaved. This is the unredeemed position. And so you see. Until you first stare at your own depravity. You cannot embrace the grace of God. But when you do. You can begin to understand this new position. Look at verse 4. You see, there's an intentional but. And they're all over the Bible. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see it. He's contrasting. This is who you were, but in the fullness of time. And we talked about this at Christmas, didn't we? What the fullness of time meant. The law had done its work. The spiritual hunger for the pagan and the Jew alike was at an all-time high. The prophets had prophesied more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah. It was the right time religiously, politically, theologically. Remember what we said? All of it was prepared and unfolded intentionally by the sovereign God that declared it to be so. It was all happening at the fullness of time. And so we remember that Christ entered Fully man, fully God, fully obedient, and was fully sacrificed 
Therefore, we are no longer slaves. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Listen, the the intentional timing. And this is connected. Verse 2. The end of verse 2. The minor is a minor until the father says otherwise. He sets the date. Mm. And not only this. Christ was sent in the fullness of time. God ordained the time, and it came intentionally. And so, listen, your redemption is intentional. We are intentionally redeemed. This is the picture. Under sin, under the law, now in Christ. His Spirit in us. Notice this. Look at the text. I want you to see this. He does not say, in the fullness of time... Christ came so that we might be redeemed. Look at what he says. He says he came and redeemed us so that we might be adopted. You see the difference. This is what J.I. Packer labors in his book to point out to us. That this is why, though justification is foundational, adoption is higher. It's richer. He redeemed us so that we might be adopted. We might receive. Do you see that? That's first person plural. It means the people he's writing to. He's saying Jews, Gentiles, both of us, all of us are under sin, under the condemnation of the law. Therefore, all must be redeemed and therefore all are adopted. No distinction. Remember the issue at hand? Do the Gentiles have to do something? Did he have to keep something to become like the Jews? He says, no way. We both have the same problem. We've both been intentionally redeemed. How? He sent his son. That's how. How did you get your status changed from a slave to a son? From a minor to a full-grown child of God. That's that's, That's what we mean when we say that. How did we do it? We did it because the seed of son. That's how our status changed. No son come, we would be a slave. Remember the illustration. Remember, this comes from a local context in that culture. And to understand adoption, you have to understand it in their context. The context was a master, a man who had no heir. So he would take a slave. He would redeem that slave and adopt that slave of his own. At that moment, that slave was not only free... That slave became a son, an actual son, full son, not partial. The date set by him, he made him. Don't we understand this through Roman culture that when a king did not have an heir, he would adopt an heir that was not royalty, and at that time he became royalty. This is adoption. This is why Christ provided us. We were intentionally redeemed So that we would no longer be slaves. But look at verse 5 and 6 together now. We are free to be sons. We are free to be mature children of God. To redeem those who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Now look at verse 6. And because you are sons. God has sent the spirit of a son into your heart. We were not only intentionally redeemed. We were intentionally redeemed. So that we might be intentionally adopted. How do we know? 
How do you know that you've been intentionally adopted? He tells us. He sent his spirit. His spirit's what makes the difference. His spirit is what takes us out from neath under something and brings us in to Christ. Galatians, he's already talked about the spirit in Galatians 3, the first five verses. Let's just look at verse, chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? So he's already told them. You didn't work for the Holy Spirit. It was given to you because you trusted in Christ. Given to you as a gift. And so now he's connecting your position to this indwelling. That we know that we're a child of God because we have indeed received His Holy Spirit. So do you see verse 4 and 5? He, he sent His Son that brings us a status change. But in verse 6, He sends His Spirit and He brings us the experience of sonship. Turn with me to 1 John 3.1. I want you to see this. There is a teaching out there rampant in evangelical Christianity that says right now you're simply wearing the sun hat. That God, because of faith, gives you a t-shirt. And the t-shirt says sun. The ball cap you're wearing says sun. But that if you take that cap off and you throw it on the ground, you no longer become a sun. What does that mean? That if in fact... Your father might adopt you into the family because something you do, he casts you off. You see, when you look at salvation as a diamond that has different facets, and Paul wants us to come over here this morning and look at the facet through sonship, it makes sense. It clarifies and corrects bad theology. Look at what it says. So we can see what kind of the love the father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. This language is beautiful. Because you see the word called there? Be called. That's the word summons. That's what kings do. They summon you. Here's the question. What was the king's? What was the father's motivation for the calling in 1 John 3? Do you see it? Love. He called you. To, to his own because... Of love. And because he did, it determines who we are. Not just positionally, conditionally. It's who we are. We are the child. This is present active indicative. He's simply saying indicative. This is a statement of fact. You are right now, ongoing in your life, right now, a child of God. Not when you get to heaven. You are right now. That's the reason he wrote 1 John. Not only so we can understand positionally, because, you see, if we're just positionally but not conditionally, are we really entitled to the privileges? But if we are actually, right now, a child of God, we are entitled, I hate to use that word because it's been perverted, but we receive the privileges of sonship. What are they? Look at this verse 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that you are no longer a son, but a son. And if a son, then heir of God. You see, in redemptive history, sonship is the climax of the Bible. Think about it. In God's self-revelation of himself, 
where we have arrived at this morning is the very climax of God's self-revelation to His people that He has redeemed. That I am your Father. Think about the Old Testament. What did they call Him? What was His covenant name? Yahweh. They called Him Jehovah, the Lord. Do you remember the temple? What did the temple do? The temple had the Holy of Holies in the presence of God, separated from the people. Who could enter into the direct presence of God? Only the priest. Only one time of year. Only after intense preparation. And dare they tie a rope to his leg, lest he enter into the holiness of God, ill-prepared, and God kill him. This is who God is, and he does not change. And so we read that the privilege in New Testament Christianity that we receive the privilege to call this God Father? This is a high privilege. It is the privilege of approaching God. We call it prayer. We approach Him in all His holiness and call Him Father. John 20, 17. I want you to see this. See if you can pick up on the context of where this is happening at. But I just want you to see the language. John 20, 17 says, And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 18 Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And the Lord said these things to her. Sisters, our redemption. God sending His Son changed everything. He changed our way that we see and relate to our God because now we relate to Him inside a covenant family. Look at verse 6. We cry out to Him. Abba, this is not baby talk. And I know one of the greatest experiences of our life as me as a father is the first time little baby. And it always, by the way, usually says daddy first. Anybody bear witness with that? You know, I think because it's easiest to say. I think Jacob said truck, but he was always special. <laughs> Abba, but listen, that's not what this is. This is a declaration of a full-grown child. Turn with me to Mark 14, 36. I want you to see that God gives us the privilege of approaching our Father in great times of need and desperation. Why? Because Jesus did. Remember context, Mark 14, 36? Jesus is in the garden. In verse 36, he said, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I, what I will, but what you will. So in Jesus' greatest times of desperation, His Father, facing the rejection of His Father and the wrath for our sin, does what? He exercises the privilege of being a son. Steady. So, Romans 8, 15, 
through adoption, we get, to brought, we get brought in to this privilege. Because don't we get frustrated? Don't we get tired? Don't we wish that the oceans of the trials of this life would just stop for a minute and just let us get our feet and get our breath? It is from our sonship that we cry out in dependency of God. Listen to Romans 8 verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Listen to verse 16. It ties it together. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So cry out to Him. That's what it's saying. Don't function in fear when the God who hanged the universe is your daddy. Cry out to Him. Isn't this what Hebrews 10, 19 said that the blood of Christ paid for? The blood of Christ took that temple, that separation of our sin in it, ripped the curtain open through the blood of Christ and tells us that we can come confidently now into the Holy of Holies and approach our Father because of our brother and his sacrifice. We can exercise this privilege in great times of need, but also just in daily life. Matthew 6, verse 7. Jesus tells his disciples how not to pray and how to pray. Listen, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Verse 8. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation. This is the prayer of a daily life of a child. Father, I don't know how I'm going to pay my taxes. I don't know I'm going to, how I'm going to provide for my family. Daddy, I really messed up today. Will you forgive me? You see, we can do that. Our position's not in question. It's been settled at the cross. We can boldly come into our daddy when we mess up and say, I messed up. Forgive me. It's a great privilege, isn't it? We can head into the temptation of your tomorrow. And we head with it first on our knees to the cross and God I do not want to shame your name today it's too precious to me the privilege of prayer if you're a man in this room you should have got an email last week I, I might have forgot or, or didn't get your email I'm, I'm, we're doing a prayer breakfast to be able to exercise this privilege January the 20th through February the 10th every Saturday at 8 o'clock we're going to meet here and we're going to pray I want you to exercise your privilege of prayer. Why? Because we need revival. You need revival. I need it. This town needs it. This country needs it. And it begins with me. I want us to pray for autonomy. But I do not want us to make one step unless we come to our Father and say, Abba. 
And listen, if we will not exercise the privilege of prayer, we need not to experience the next privilege of intimacy. Christ gives us the ability, the privilege of experiencing true intimacy. John 5 verse 20 expresses this between the Father and the Son. It's all over Scripture. John loves to focus on this. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing and the greater works than these that He will show Him so that you all might marvel. You see, here's the question. Do you have the mind of Christ? If any of us have been married any length of time, we know that over a period of time, God makes us one. We begin to share the same thoughts. We begin to know each other's dreams, our fears, our struggles. We begin to feel the pain of each other. We know their joys. We know their sorrows. We've walked through the trials of their life with them, and we begin to experience this. Is this how you feel about your father and your brother? Do you long for intimacy? Listen to me, this is important. Look up with me. Unless you experience true intimacy with Christ, intimacy with others will elude you. Do we not all understand this through our experience? That the more of these these pseudo-intimate relationships, these posing relationships that we go to through, one after another simply leaves us more longing for intimacy, not less. You need to understand this this morning. True intimacy is a privilege of sonship. And unless you're a son, it will elude you. And unless you first pursue it with Christ, you will not experience it with others. But when you experience it with Christ, your mercy and your unconditional love will flow out first into your family and then into this world. This is the privilege of being a son. And see... John 15, 9 says this, extends it to us. It says, as the Father loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. Abide. John loves that word. Abide. Abide in me is what Christ would say over and over. You see, the Judaizers were missing it. They were missing it. They had all their religious routine down pat. They didn't miss a Sunday. They didn't forget to tithe. But they had no intimacy. So how is yours? Listen, I'm sorry that we live in a sin-sick, sex-crazed world who cannot think about intimacy unless we think of something cheap and temporary. But that is not what God allows for His children. And so we must first think of intimacy in the context of of our salvation and our adoption. See, intimacy involves a revealing of oneself to another. If that does not happen, there is no intimacy. So this is why we pray. We come to God, to our Father, in desperate prayer because we desire to be intimate with Him. You see... They must reveal themselves to us. God must reveal Himself to you. 
You cannot just choose to be intimate. Intimacy is two directions. Him revealing Himself to you, and you're opening yourself to us. Listen to me. No word, no prayer, no intimacy. It is not some hocus-pocus feeling that me and Micah feel like we got to drum up on Sundays. No, we do not. Here's what I know. You pursue desperate intimacy with God in your, in your every day. In the quietness of your reality, then when we gather on Sunday, it will be a necessity, not an option. Why? Because being in a family is a privilege. Packer, that's what Packer says. Listen, adoption is higher blessing than justification because of the richer relationship it, it involves. Do you see that? It's higher. Foundationally, we've laid the foundation. Now we're at the top, looking down at salvation through sonship. What does he give us? He gives us the privilege of approaching him. He gives us the privilege of intimacy, and he gives us the privilege of an inheritance. This is all bound together. Look back with me, Galatians 3, 26 to 29. We get the privilege of an inheritance. We get an eternal family. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female, slave or free. We're all one in Christ. Remember we talked about this last week. We have an eternal family. Listen, you are only married for a temporary time. And then you will pass on into eternity where there only exists one family in Christ. And we will forever spend eternity together as a family. It's part of what God has given us. He has given us a family with a father. Of which we are all sons all of us that are in Christ are full-grown children of God. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And look at this. You are not a partial child of God today if you're in Christ. You are joint heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. Do you see that? It's a great privilege. You're not a partial child. You're a full adopted child with all the privilege of sonship and adoption and and you are an heir to an inheritance. And we will receive an eternal home. Matthew 25 and verse 34. What do we inherit? Let's let scripture tell us. Matthew 25 and verse 34 says this. Then the king will say to those on his right. Come you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What do we inherit? Everything. Everything. But do not allow your, any sin that resides in your flesh to start building yourself a mansion in heaven. That's not the point, And it never was. Matthew 19.29 says this, And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit what? Eternal life. This is the essence of your inheritance. What did John say was eternal life? It's knowing God. It's knowing Him. Do you see this? You've got to get this today. 
every privilege that we, un, that we see and that we discover and that we experience through the indwelling of the Spirit, through His Word, through His prayer, through walking a life of faith that really does cost us, we, we will experience just these snapshots, these foretastes of what we will experience in eternity that will be more fuller and more truer. The best intimacy you will ever experience on earth is simply a foretaste of what we will experience in the presence of our Father. Everything is fuller. Everything is true. And so Revelation 21 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son forever. This is the high privilege. Do you understand this today? Do you cherish this? Is this what orients you? How much time do you think of God being your father and Jesus being your brother? I wish, Mikey, if we had time. Now that our minds are firmly set on our sonship, that now we could go back and sing those songs. Because you see, now it is your brother on that tree. He's your brother. And he poured out his blood for you. It's now your father who had to slaughter your brother because your sin was too great to bring you into the family any other way. This is why it's higher. Does the family likeness appear in you? You see, that doesn't come from biology. It's reality, isn't it? The more time you spend with somebody, the more you begin to act like them. How much time are you spending with your father and with your brother? You know, Paul uses many metaphors in the Bible to help us understand how to live the Christian life. Sometimes he, he says that we're like a soldier that has to fight and we have to put on the armor. Sometimes we're like someone in a race and we've got to keep running the race because we've got we to gotta finish. We've got to win. We've got to persevere. He uses these illustrations. But brothers and sisters, we must be careful this morning that we do not misuse the metaphors in the Bible. Lest we begin to think that the church is an army or a winning team or even worse, a grocery store. Why is that dangerous? Are, are we that or are we at foundationally a family? You see, if we're a grocery store, then we just shop around for the best bang for our buck. We have no real commitment to buy low. If buy low is not low, then we go shop at Harris Teeter or somewhere else. If it's an army, then is the loss the enemy? Hasn't Christ actually won the victory? Listen, we do fight. We do. Listen to what I'm saying. But we fundamentally fight as family. Talk, give me a guy who's served our country, who's been in the trenches fighting the fight, and they'll tell you, I'm fighting for my brother that's beside of me. I've got his back and he's got mine. You see, even they understand people fight better from family. 
This is what we are. We're family. And when we fight, we do fight. But we fight as a family. We're not a ball team. Who's the competition? Other churches? Are we in competition? This is not a business. I'm not the CEO. Our elders are not the board of directors. And our focus is not just profit and efficiency. It's not. Why not? Because your family is not efficient. Is it? <laughs> Let's think about this for just a second. What's the focus of your family? Family is imperfect and inefficient, isn't it? This will help you when you think your pastor or the church is supposed to be perfect. And if you reorient yourself to family and look at your family first, you'll see something very logical, that your family is neither perfect nor efficient. Why? Because if you ever had a two-year-old in the house, you'll understand that a house is not an efficient machine. Listen, they have accidents at the most worst possible times, don't they? Getting ready to leave the house, we're going to be on time for church this first time all month, and they go to the bathroom right there in their pants, just right there. You just took them to the bathroom. What? Do we not all have we not all experienced this? You ever tried to plan a vacation with a teenager? Not very easy. All you got to do is this: get this really good, perfect plan in your mind and set up a timeline for your holidays and vacations. If you want to mess up a vacation with a two-year-old or a teenager, just set a rigid timeline and not be flexible. You see, family understands this. If we are going to enjoy each other, we're going to have to embrace the fact that none of us are, are perfect and none of us are always functioning like a machine because we're not machines, we're people. How about your 50s? I'm getting mighty close. I'm already feeling this tendency. You go through this midlife crisis to where you begin to realize that about half of the water's already gone and the... You know, the it's getting sort of close, and next thing I know, I start getting the inclination for a Corvette or something. Start running, my life goes into a little bit of a crisis mode for a season. I get in my 70s, and I can't do what I used to do. I can't go where I used to go. Listen, this is my point. What does family afford them all? Unconditional, sacrificial love intercessory prayer, and a promise. I will not give up on you, no matter what. Why? Because we're family. This is why we have growth groups in homes. It's just not for pragmatic reasons. It's because homes are where family lives. We do not live in institutions. We live in families. And so, we must understand very practically this morning, we just don't want to need to be who we are. Who are you today? Your child. Redeemed so that you may be brought into the family. And with that redemption, you have precious promises. So I ask you today, will you just be who you are? We, we learned this. and I'm use this illustration. I'm done. Flying home when we got our children home, we had, what, three flights? It was the flight, and we were flying into New Jersey. A rather long flight. There was a young lady of Asian 
descent, sitting at the window. It was Sean, it was me. Me and Sean didn't know six words where we could communicate between us. <laughs> he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Lingala. We knew a few words. And so praise the Lord for that little screen on the front of the seat. <laughs> we put in Cars movie, and he kept watching the Cars, going backwards. He'd watch it and go back and watch it again. Didn't bother me. It was all good. It was driving this the, the, the lady here at the window crazy. But she was very quiet, very mild-mannered. She had her headphones on. And she had them on for five hours, wouldn't even look over there at me. But it was just building up in her. You know, here I am, this white guy. It was obviously that my son was not only black, but that we, he didn't speak the language, but yet he was my son. It was obvious for the way we, we was dealing with things. And so she finally pulled her headphones down, and she looked over there at me, and we started talking. And I can't remember exactly how she said it, but she was gracious. She said, why would you, at this juncture in your life, choose to do this? I looked at her. I called her by her name. I don't remember who she was now. I said, well, you know, I said, I've already, I already have three kids. And there's one thing I know how to be. I know how to be a father. I've been a father. I am a daddy. I know how to be a daddy. So I am a daddy. Sean's never had a daddy. So if I am a daddy, and he's never had a daddy, why wouldn't I want to be his daddy? That 50-year-old woman laid back in her seat, and she said, oh, my God. She said, I've, me and my husband spent most of our life not waiting for our kids to leave so we could do our own thing. Brothers and sisters, you should know how to be a child of God if you are one. So here's what we are to do. We are to look at the lost world not as something we're supposed to beat, not as the enemy, but as orphans who have no home and we have been rescued. And we have been adopted. And we have been brought into the family. And so that is our message. That we have a Father who will bring you into the family. And will never let you go. And that's the best news for the people who need the worst. So Lord, we worship you. As both our holy God. Who works all things after the counsel of your will who holds the universe together, and yet, because of love, because you chose to set your love on us, we are now in your family. We have now received this seal of the Holy Spirit that proves to us in our actual experience we are in fact your children, safe, secure, in heir to it all. So Lord, would you give us from this identity an intense passion to not let people walk by us and not tell them who we are. More importantly, who we are in you. So Lord, now, 
as we have not only came to the cross, but now we have entered into the very presence of God where you have pulled us up on your lap and kissed us on our cheek. We now worship you. The God who is in absolute control and that is our Father, we stand and say, we'll never be the same. And we don't want to be. We simply want to make much of you. In Jesus' name, stand to your feet.